Hello everyone, you're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us on the In the Weeds podcast with the Michigan Field Crops team. My name is Monica Jean and I'm a field crops educator that covers the Saginaw Bay region. And I'm here today to um, interview Matt Gammons, a professor at MSU, about our carbon market craze that's currently happening. Um, Of course, joined since we're talking about financial stuff is my co-host, Corey Clark. Corey, would you mind introducing yourself? Of course. I'm Corey Clark. I'm the farm business management educator in the thumb. And Matt, thank you for coming on here. Do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. So yeah, my name is Matt Gammons, and I'm an assistant professor in agricultural food and resource economics at Michigan State, and also an extension economist. Uh, really, really happy to be here. Thank you. Yes. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and kick this off. So Matt, could you tell us a little bit about the, just the basics? What is, what are carbon markets? How do they work? How might this impact farms? Yeah. So the, the basic logic of, of a carbon market is um, that in order to reduce climate change, uh, it requires a reduction in, in greenhouse gases. And so the idea here is to create a market for that so that people are incentivized to reduce um, their greenhouse gas emissions. So a market means that kind of this can flow to the most efficient person to do that. So, you know, someone who's you know putting out a lot of CO2, you know, maybe a refinery might pay, you know, say a farmer uh, to change their practices um, that results in some more carbon sequestration or at least reduced greenhouse gas emissions. So um, and so that, that leads to a price on the carbon um, to try and kind of motivate people to reduce these greenhouse gases. So that's kind of the, the high level overview. So, you know, how that could affect your farm, basically kind of any sort of practice um, that, you know, is going to lead to a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions or an increase in soil carbon sequestration um, could potentially, um, you know, in kind of a future ideal market be eligible for, for these sorts of payments. So, so that's kind of like the, the kind of warm and fuzzy um, high level overview of, of these markets. Um, and then there's a lot more kind of how are they actually administered? How does this verification take place um, that we can get into more? Could you tell us a little bit about the, how, they, how it works part? I mean, like who uh, holds the market? Who runs the market? What are, we, what are we looking at right now? Yeah, so, so right now we're, we're a little bit in the, the wild west of these carbon markets. There's not really one carbon market in the U.S. There's actually kind of a, a lot of different carbon markets, and I think I'll, I'll classify them into to two categories. So one is uh, the California cap and trade market. So they actually put a cap on carbon, um, and if you're kind of in California and emitting greenhouse gases, you need to go find, find offsets for that so that you have the permits to do that. And so that, that has led to uh, kind of people doing programs to reduce their carbon emissions um, and getting carbon credits for that uh, well outside of California. Um, so, you know, one, one example is a lot of the carbon credits in California were actually coming from uh, Arkansas. So people were kind of doing projects there, um, often related to rice production that led to carbon credits that they sold on the California exchange. So that's where you actually have a government kind of putting in a cap um, and then kind of realizing a price on carbon that comes from people you know, saying, you know, I'm willing to pay this much for a credit while I'm willing to do this new program and then sell that credit to you for the same price. Um, so that's kind of a, a government mandated 
market. Um, and then there's also a, a voluntary market. And this is, there's a lot of action here too, where you have private sector companies who kind of want to be carbon neutral, um, either, you know, because they're motivated by just altruism or probably more likely is this is important to the consumers that they serve. Um, so they want to be able to document that they are taking actions to reduce their carbon footprint, um, but their business practices are also emitting carbon. So in order to be carbon neutral, you need to kind of find someone else to go in and create this carbon reductions that they're going to use to say that their business practice is carbon neutral. So um, these are agricultural companies. These are car companies. Um, even, you know, oil companies are getting involved in this. So there's, um, you know, a, a lot of action and that this is totally voluntary. So this is something that these companies are just, just doing on their own without a, without a government kind of mandate. And it ranges like some of that, the companies might just handle that sustainability mission internally, but they may also use a third party to kind of be the facilitator from the farm to that business and from that business to the, the, the business that's purchasing, right? They're the ones emitting and need the farms to credit them their carbon. And so that's where like a company like Indigo Ag, they're like that third party that brokers between the carbon emitting company and then the carbon sequestering farm. Um, and it really is company specific. So you mentioned Indigo Ag. Um, so they have kind of a, a large suite of, of states. Michigan isn't one of them right now, uh, but a lot of our neighbors are, um, where they're kind of recruiting farmers um, into these into these programs. Um, you know, there's other, uh, Bayer has a program that's being piloted on some farms in the U.S. and also Brazil. So there's there's a, a range of companies that are, are kind of trying to step in and, and be a broker in this marketplace where they kind of match people who need these credits uh, with people with the capacity to produce them. So of the farms, you know, well, you, maybe you don't know them, but I'm just wanting to like kind of play out an example here. What would what practices would qualify to be to get signed up as a carbon sequestering farm? Yeah, so so it ranges. Um, but I mean, the, the most common ones that I would think about are are cover cropping. Um, and then changing fertilizer management practices. So, so nitrous oxide is a, a really potent greenhouse gas. Um, so kind of altering your nitrogen fertilizer application in a way that reduces the nitrous oxide um, emissions uh, is, a, is a powerful way to reduce the greenhouse gases on, on your farm. Um, and if you can document that and have it verified, um, that kind of opens the door for um, getting carbon credits potentially. Do you have any idea how much carbon credits yeah, so I don't know kind of exactly, exactly kind of what practice maps to what amount of emissions. Um, and, and that varies actually, depending on your, your soil type um, and kind of other components of your farm. And, and it's not even agreed upon by experts sort of, there's no one hard and fast rule of, you know, cover cropping equals X amount of carbons. This is like the sacred level. Um, you know, this is a topic of open debate, but it, it is true that kind of a lot of these practices thinking about no-till, thinking about cover cropping, thinking about increasing crop rotation diversity. Um, you know, there's solid science there that these do reduce greenhouse gases. I think that the question is how much. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, one, one estimate I saw, and this is, you know, it's going to depend on your farm. So, you know, you take the numbers with a grain of salt, but, um, you know, adopting kind of a, a big portfolio of these practices, you're thinking about, you know, maybe half a ton of carbon per acre. So that's, that's kind of a rough back of the envelope, but that's sort of the amount that you should be thinking about as, as realistic. You know, you're not going to 
you're not going to be at 10, 10 tons of carbon per acre or anything like that. Okay. And then do you know how much a ton of carbon is worth? Yeah. So this is, comes back to the wild West marketplace where there, there isn't one price on carbon. Um, so that's kind of the way, way bigger than just carbon credits and way bigger than just uh, agriculture. That's kind of the, the problem of climate change policy globally is that, you know, there, there isn't a single price on carbon. Um, so, you know, no one really agrees uh, what, what that, what that price should be. Um, so on the markets that are operating right now, you know, we have prices ranging from, you know, very low, just a few dollars up to, you know, maybe $50 a ton. The, the bulk of the, the current trading is happening, you know, closer to the $10 per ton range. So you think about that on your farm, you know, five, $6 per acre, potentially. Yeah. So it's not going to save the farm or anything like that. Um, and I also wonder, like, at that, at that rate, is it worth what the farmer might be giving up? So, um, cause you're obviously changing your production. So you might be getting less yield than what you did prior to the changes you made. Maybe you're getting more. I would like to think you're getting more if you're doing some soil health practices, but still, right. There's a level of investment and change and change that you're going to have to manage until that system is working correctly. So um, there's going to be a level of cost happening there. And, um, and so that each farm will, I guess, have to weigh that out. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think like I, I would hate for people to get kind of $6 an acre stuck in their heads and think that that's going to be the price forever. I mean, the, the fact is we don't really know. Yeah. The fact is that there's a lot of policy change at the federal level that could lead to that number being, you know, pretty different in just a few years. Um, in terms of kind of what, what the farmer is giving up um, to participate in these markets. Um, and yeah, I want to go back to the fact that these markets, you know, aren't everywhere yet. So, um, you know, they're still kind of in their infancy, but, you know, what would be given up? I think the big one is flexibility. So kind of when you sign a contract to get involved in these markets, you're you know, signing a contract that, you know, I'm going to do practices X, Y, and Z so that I can get, you know, some, some payment. Um, and then, you know, if you change your mind about what practices you want to do on your farm, you know, it's kind of too bad. You, you signed a contract, um, you know, agreeing to do this. So, so I, I think the big thing that you give up is flexibility, you know, whether it increases costs or drives yields up or down. You know, I think a lot of these practices are actually compatible with, with long-term yield improvements, um, especially thinking about um, cover cropping and, and rotation diversity. Uh, but, you know, there's costs associated with it too. So how it actually pencils out on a profitability level is going to be farm specific for sure. And how long, what kind of length of investment, how long-term investment is involved for the farmers that might want to participate? Yeah. So, um, so we mentioned Indigo earlier. And so Indigo has, I think a 10 year contract. So that's, you know, a long, a long contract, right? So that's your kind of making promises wow. way out into the future. And, you know, you'd have to, you know, as with any contract, you'd have to read the fine print and figure out what happens if you change your mind, you know, at the end of the day, they can't force you to do things they don't want, but you know, there is a penalty with breaking these contracts. Um, so, you know, you have to read all the fine print, but they want a long-term contract. And that's because in order for these, you know, practices to really be reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, or sequestering carbon in the soil, you know, you can't just do them for a couple of years and go back. You know, that's just not how 
soil carbon retention works. Yeah, you go till and there goes all the carbon that you exactly. Work so, hard so, to put in. so how about land that you may not control for very long? Lands that's rented and you may not have be certain you're gonna control it for 10 years. Like rented land? Yeah, like rented land. Yeah. Um, you know, to be to be blunt, I, I think that you know, if you can't commit to, you know, enough years, then that's going to limit your ability to get involved in these markets, at at least as they exist right now. So, um, you know, most of the contracts that I've seen, you know, the the smallest that we're seeing is, is, you know, five years. So, you know, if you can't guarantee that these practices are going to be on the farm in five years, that's going to make it harder for you to find someone who wants to match you kind of with, with someone emitting. Um, So going back to that, that broker, it's going to be hard to find a broker who's going to kind of want to deal with deal with you in that case, I think. Sounds like you might have to change the contracts you use with if, if you're renting, right? Maybe you could do longer term rental agreements too. Who's making the commitment? The yeah. renter or the landlord? Yeah. So Seattle-based company I was thinking of is, is called Nori. Um, and it's, it's another one of these kind of brokers effectively. Um, and so they don't require kind of a, a commitment from, from the landowner. Um, you know, if, if you can show that you are the land manager and that you're making the decisions on the farm, you can enter one of these, these contracts. I would say it's good for everyone to be on the same page. If a landowner wants to be part of these markets, is this something they would like write into a rental contract? No, right now there's stipulations in rental contracts in terms of what practices. So I don't see this as being any different, but I, I don't actually know that for sure. It I seems to be an up and coming issue with um, rental agreements because I hear more and more landowners wanting conservation practices on their land and not entirely sure how to pursue that. It would look like a long-term lease agreement with pretty well-defined practices. With the same farmer, right? Yes. So if you're going to assign that marriage, you might, you might want to make sure you really like it, right? Because <laughs> it's not a short-term, like Matt said, these contracts, the smallest ones are five. And sounds like 10 could be even more normal. And if you're talking about wanting to adapt conservation practices to benefit your land, it's really the same about the same amount of length of time. So any of these conservation practices should not be something that's a short-term adoption that you're not going to see the benefit. And you're going to see a lot of pain involved in those first couple of years. When you first start to climb that hill of adopting conservation practices, that's where you're going to see the most amount of like um, expenditures, you know, you're adapting to that, new rotation. That's also where you might see a yield dip because maybe you haven't completely figured out out the herbicide control you should be using with that cover crop. Or, um, you know, you needed to purchase equipment to get that to work. And so you've got a new, a new payment going on there. Um, and so it could take a while to really start to see that benefit your pocketbook. And I would hate for people to get started on that path. And it look really hard and then them turn back before they get to that five-year checkpoint. And then really at 10 years is where you're going to see, especially for carbon sequestration, a change in your soil organic matter significant enough that it's actually accounting towards um, a large amount of carbon. And also with carbon become more available nutrients. And so um, uh, an impact to, to your nutrient management on the farm. Even outside of kind of the carbon credit sphere, I think that that 
that logic of a hill is a, is a good metaphor because I think that that's how people have thought about kind of subsidizing these sort of practices. Um, it's not that these practices are, are bad. So we, or they, they're not, you know, super costly in the long term so that we need to subsidize them. It's that there's a hill. Um, and so kind of the subsidy, using a subsidy to get people over the hill kind of to the to where they want to be, I think has, has been the logic. Um, have you seen, are there any, any markets available in Michigan or what you would say is an emerging market you would expect to see in the next year or so? So the American Carbon Registry has a, a not complete, an, an incomplete listing of kind of all of the carbon credit programs, um, especially ones that have been trying to, to sell those, those credits in California, but it includes some voluntary ones as well. Um, and so in Michigan, you see kind of when you scroll through that registry, you see a lot of kind of forest carbon um, and you do see, you know, one agricultural um, actually kind of kind of near you, kind of in the Saginaw Bay area. Um, that was the, a partnership between a nonprofit um, that was kind of paying for these practices. Um, but in general, you know, it's it's kind of a, a program here, a program there. You know, maybe people who have gotten involved in, in pilot programs that potentially in the future might be scaled up. But I, I don't think we've seen kind of a large a large scale market for this that kind of anyone can jump into easily. Um, it's still very program based. This is a slow growing thing. And I, and I wonder if it's because there's not policy behind any of this yet. If that's kind of a missing puzzle piece that would really um, create more momentum. Is there Do any you... sense of where this is headed in this administration? Yes. Yeah. So there's, you know, I can't, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I will say that, you know, there's definitely a lot of it's a priority for the Biden administration. I mean, he, he says it all the time. Uh, I think, um, you know, here, here in Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, who's, you know, a big player in, in federal ag policy, um, this is a priority for her. Um, and so I think that there's, you know, definitely, uh, yeah, definitely energy around kind of a, a carbon, carbon markets and in the ag space. Um, I think that agriculture will play a prominent role in kind of whatever climate policy comes out of this administration. Um, so, you know, what would, what would really generate, uh, you know, a, an active carbon market is if there was a carbon cap. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's extremely unlikely to see in the near future. Uh, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I think that what's much more likely is that we see federal policies sort of getting involved and in kind of creating a standard for verification. So, you know, we have these voluntary marketplaces um, and we have kind of lots of brokers who are, are willing to kind of wheel and deal in the middle. And I could easily see a federal policy um, kind of coming in and saying, you know, here, here's the standards for how you map, you know, practices on farm into an amount of carbon to then sell. Um, so so I, I see that as the most likely space for policy. So you see that like as a verification process, like with meat? type thing or something different? Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a, there's a bill right now, the, the growing climate solutions act and, and what this bill, and this is a bipartisan bill that has support from both parties. And what this bill would do if it became law is it would kind of authorize, um, well, more than authorize, it would sort of demand that the USDA kind of go out and essentially verify the verifiers. So it would create a list of, um, verification companies or organizations that it says, you know, these, these people, you know, they're legit and they can, they can verify carbon that you can then use and sell on a carbon market. So 
Um, so I think it would be a little different from MEEP in that it, it wouldn't be the government itself that's verifying. There would still be a private market, uh, but the government would be essentially licensing the verifiers. Yes. Yeah. That's how I also have interpreted it. And I so think who it's... decides how much carbon is part of any particular practice. Yeah. So we haven't talked too much about verification and it's a really important step in this process is kind of how do you get from practices to, you know, an amount of carbon. And we sort of jumped over one of the, the links, one of the, the, the key problems is that, you know, you can't just go out and measure um, the, the technology just isn't there to kind of go to a farm, measure one year, change your practices, come back, measure, and then like take the difference. It just, just, just doesn't exist. So, so kind of what has risen up instead is using kind of scientifically calibrated models that say, you know, in this location, on this soil type, this practice tends to, on average, you know, lead to, to X amount of um, carbon sequestration or reduced emissions. Um, and I'm sort of, I've, I'm always saying those in tandem because they, they sort of are the, the same thing, right? So if you reduce your emissions, that's kind of the same as increasing your sequestration from a, from a climate change perspective, where what really matters is the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So, and this is a, an area of active debate at universities among scientists is kind of what are the best models. Um, and this is something, so Australia had a carbon, a carbon cap and a carbon market, um, you know, that was introduced about 10 years ago that they're sort of, you know, revamping right now. Um, and this is a, an open question there in terms of, you know, how do we, how do we model this and, and what are the best models to use? And I think that science will continue to evolve. Um, and I think part of having a verified verifiers, um, uh, you know, verifiers verified by the USDA is sort of a mouthful. Um, I think part of that is that the USDA will specify kind of what models they think are science-based and what models they think are legit um, and what ones aren't. Um, and so then, you know, there will always be wiggle room for, you know, people to make their own decisions. I, I think that potentially is a good thing. Um, but there'll be some, you know, some limits on, on what sort of models can, can count towards this marketplace and which can't. Um, so is this a really a great solution to climate change? And I mean, I get, I get, I sweat a little when people talk like ag is the silver bullet to uh, climate change, right? Solving all of our problems. So uh, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, so I mean, I, I also sweat when people think about ag as a silver bullet um, or when they think about ag as sort of the, the main villain, it's, it's really neither. It's just a piece of, of a bigger puzzle. So, so in the US, you know, rough estimates is that maybe 10% of greenhouse gas emissions um, come from the agricultural sector, um, you know, Obviously, you know, if you have carbon sequestration, that, that can offset, you know, some chunk of that, but, you know, it can't, it can't offset all of that. Um, so I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a silver bullet, but I think it can be a, a piece of the puzzle. So uh, a key benefit of, of, a, of involving agricultural in kind of a, a larger climate change push is that um, it's essentially thinking that there's some some low hanging fruit so that there's some practices that, that could be adopted that aren't too costly, that if a bit of incentive is there, um, they can make, you know, pretty moderate reductions in greenhouse gas emissions on farm and, and not be too costly to the farmer. And then, you know, they, they get a carbon payment and kind of everyone's winning. Everyone's a, a little bit better off um, is kind of the, the logic. Um, you know, it's not going to single handedly 
you know, make climate change go away. Uh, it's just, I just don't think that kind of the tons of CO2 are, are there for the taking. And I don't think there's that much low hanging fruit. There's some, but you know, not, not enough to solve the problem unilaterally. Can you talk a little bit about additionality and what's going on there? Yeah. So, so additionality is this idea that, you know, in order for these markets to really be effective at reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you know, they can't be things that people were going to do anyways. Um, you know, it has to be something that kind of wouldn't have been done, but then you got a payment and decided to do it. And this is, I mean, this puts, it's sort of a, it's a tough spot, right? Because kind of you're most likely to be excited about these markets if you've kind of already been thinking about getting involved in some of these practices. Um, but if that's the case, you know, you're going to have to, it's more of an uphill battle to show that, you know, these are really, this is really new emissions that aren't going out there. Sorry, these are new reductions, basically. Um, so it's, there's, you know, a bit of a tension there between kind of, you know, farmers and, and the verifiers. Um, so the, the interests aren't kind of perfectly aligned. Um, so a farmer that decides to start doing, let's say, um, five-year rotation with three of those years having a cover crop now. And before they were just doing a two-year rotation and no cover crop, right? So um, they've made that alteration. And because they've invested and already started doing that, it doesn't count as a, a decrease in the carbon because it's an existing practice. Yeah, so that's um, so that varies a little bit depending on, on kind of which broker you're talking about. Some of them will let you count um, changes in practices that may have occurred in the, the past couple of years, and then you kind of commit to continuing them um, and kind of making a longer term commitment. Other, you know, for Bayer, for example, you know, you have, these have to be brand new practices. Um, so as soon as you sort of adopt a practice on your farm, you're no longer eligible for these programs. So, um, so that's tough, right? And I think people kind of rightly say, you know, hey, that's not fair. I've been kind of running my farm the right way for 10 years, uh, and now I'm not gonna get these payments, what the heck? Um, and I think it, it is unfair, um, but it, it really comes back to the idea that they're paying for a specific service. You know, these, these are payments for a change in carbon. Um, and if you're not kind of, if you don't have a practice where you're going to change the carbon coming off your farm, um, then kind of there's not a market to, to pay for that. So yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the idea of additionality, that what people want to pay for is, is additional reductions, kind of not just good practices in general. Well, this has been very interesting talking about this carbon markets and how it could pan out for our, our ag community. So I just want to thank both you, uh, Corey and Matt, for coming on here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.